Livinaka, this is Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. I'm Alicia Foon. Coming up, Marshall Islands in the United States sign a major deal. Also, the amount of time that this uh, power outage has occurred has been four times. In Tonga, the kingdom's main island of Tongatapu is experiencing power outages due to volcanic ash corroding power lines. And later... It's been affecting our food security as well as water security. Pacific Island states meet over shared priorities ahead of the United Nations Climate Change Conference, COP28 in Dubai. Negotiators from the Marshall Islands and the United States have finally signed off on their Compact 3 deal, which is one of three 20-year multi-billion dollar funding arrangements that Washington has with countries in Micronesia. The other two states, Palau and Federated States of Micronesia, signed their agreements earlier this year. But Marshall Islands has a unique bilateral relationship with the US, given the superpower's legacy of nuclear weapon testing in its islands. Kuroi Hawkins spoke with RNZ Pacific's correspondent in the Marshall Islands, Giff Johnson, shortly after the signing ceremony in Hawaii. Yeah, the compact and a couple of subsidiary agreements were signed off uh, by U.S. and Marshall Islands negotiators in Honolulu. Uh, Monday, Honolulu time, Tuesday, Marshall Islands time. And starting with the big agreement, maybe backtracking a bit, why has this one taken so long? I understand the other two have been concluded. This is the final one. Is that right? It, correct. P- both Palau and the Federated States of Micronesia signed off on their compacts in, I, I believe it was May. And uh, and what, what, what people need to understand is, is that there is no country in the region that has this particular bilateral issue with the United States, which is the nuclear weapons test legacy. This isn't a complicated issue, but it's a hugely important issue to the Marshall Islands. And it unfortunately still hasn't been properly addressed. But this was the, you know, the the Marshall Islands was trying to get the United States executive branch, the State Department and so on, to essentially come to the table and address the nuclear legacy in a partnership way, in a way that would be good for both the United States and the Marshall Islands. And the State Department just puts up the legal roadblocks. They they just don't want to allow it to happen. Uh, so long story short, over the last maybe month or two, there's been a lot of work on other subsidiary agreements, okay? And these are really the meat of the compacts of free association for all three countries is, are the subsidiary agreements. And the overall agreement, uh, the, 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 what they call the amended compact, this will be the, the second amended compact because we had compact one, 1986, compact two in 2003, and now we have compact three, is that gives the overall total funding and the, the, the basic framework and then in the the two uh, subsidiary agreements that were signed today, one is a fiscal procedures agreement uh, that describes like oversight and monitoring and management of U.S. funding. And the second was the trust fund agreement. And because they're changing the terms of the trust fund 
uh, because the U.S. is making a, an additional investment of $700 million into the trust fund. Uh, and instead of keeping it all in, like the FSM and Palau, they just have locked their money away for another 20 years to let it grow. Uh, the marshals will be able to access some of the money that's been put in for various things to be determined. So those were the that's the basic things that were signed off today in Honolulu. And uh, I mean, the like I watched it. Right. I watched the ceremony and I think it was a big deal. And it was done at the East West Center. The president of the East West Center was there and opened it. She called it an historic agreement. Uh, the uh, the assistant secretary for interior who deals with the islands, Carmen Cantor, was there. And she spoke about how important this is. Uh, Foreign Minister Jack Adding from the Marshall Islands reiterated. And I mean, I think what was significant to me is Everybody, it's a big shake hands and pat everybody on the back kind of a, a session with U.S. and Marshall Islands flags and, you know, a whole bunch of people there and clapping. And and uh, that was one element of it. The other is that both Foreign Minister Adding and the chief negotiator, Philip Mueller, did raise the issue of the nuclear legacy. And, you know, like it, it's clearly not resolved, even though there's some ability of the Marshall Islands to use some of the money for for nuclear-related things. It's just not really clear, and we haven't seen the documents, the black and white, uh, so it's too early to really comment on what the specifics are. Uh, but it was it was definitely mentioned that this is the big issue for the Marshall Islands, is resolving the nuclear legacy. In Tonga, the kingdom's main island of Tongatapu has been experiencing power outages due to volcanic ash corroding power lines. Tonga's only electricity provider, Tonga Power, says the abrasive ash created by last year's Hunga Tonga Hunga Haapai volcanic eruption has been responsible for four outages in less than a year. Finau Fonua has more. That's the sound of ash rain soon after the Hunga Tonga Hunga Haapai volcano erupted on January 15th. The effects is still being felt. A huge plume of ash turned day into night and blanketed Tongatapu, turning it into a grey, moon-like landscape. The ash, which is rich in chemicals like magnesium, calcium, sulphur and zinc, is corroding plastic and metal which power line cables are made of. Donga Power business manager Andrew Kautoke is calling it a crisis, with four power outages to the main island in under a year. The reason why we call this a crisis is because this is uh, one of the first times this has ever happened in the network, especially uh, seeing that it's an impact from the volcanic ash. The amount of time that this uh, power outage has occurred has been four times, which started in September 16, 2022. That's the scale of the power outages. The eruption discharged the equivalent of 58,000 Olympic-sized swimming pools of vapor and about 400 million kilograms of sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere. In a press conference organized in Nuku'alofa last week, Gautoke said more outages are expected and the cables need replacing. 
Donga Power CEO Finau Moa says apart from cutting off electrical currents, it also causes a short circuit blowing up fuses in households, with the tropical heat only making things worse. When we look at the wires today, there's ash inside it. While it's there, it's eroding the wire, and that's what's causing the problem. It eats through the exterior of the wire and damages the cable inside, causing a short circuit and killing the electricity. That is the problem we are facing now. The full extent of the damage is still being surveyed, but Galtoke says that even after replacing the wires, they need to be meticulously cleaned to prevent corrosion from residue ash in Dongatapu. Most of our power outage has occurred in the Nualofa. The, the faults that have happened happened in around the Nualofa district. But of course, although the faults happen most in the Nualofa district, there's also um, homes that are connected in a feeder. So other villages that are part of that feeder will also have the power outages. He estimates that replacing the wires may cost up to 20 million paanga, over 8 million US dollars. Gautoke says outages are expected in the months to come as surveying continues across the kingdom before the power lines can be replaced. Meanwhile, Tonga's government is advising mariners to stay at least four kilometres clear of Home Reef due to ongoing volcanic activity. The Home Reef covers an area of seven hectares and is about 25 kilometres southwest of Late Island in Va'avu Group. That has experienced five eruptions since Saturday. The Papua New Guinea government says the reopening of the critically important Pogera gold mine in Inga province is very close. There had been hopes it would open last month, but the acting Prime Minister, John Rosso, has told our PNG correspondent Scott Whitey that he is full of confidence the mine will open soon. The whole of PNG, we used to only collect 5, 5% of Pogera. We used to own only 5% of Pogera. Now we have about 51% of uh, Pogera, and it's a bigger, bigger stake for, for us. And yes, it's been slow. Yes, uh, it should have been a little bit more faster, but it took time to capture everyone's expectations, aspirations. There's a lot of moving parts in there, and I'm quite certain that everything's been captured, and we should be working to, towards having a fully developed Pogera very shortly. Last week, Friday, uh, you see, as part of the culmination, was NEC approving uh, the Pogera agreement that was signed governor by the Governor-General, and also... We are pleased to announce that there's over 1,000 people already on the ground working in Pogera right now as we speak. We have a lot of other issues to do there. Uh, things like the development forum need to do, the uh, Enga Pronto government, the landowners on the site. But we're moving towards uh, restarting Pogera very, very soon. How soon? I'd be saying in, it's already started. The, it's already started. You've got about over 1,000 people over there. But by next year, you should have it uh, up and running. Um, the, the delay in restarting the mine, that's obviously got its own costs. It has its own costs. How cost. are you dealing with it? Dealing, uh, right now, the cost of uh, picking up the cost is being borne by Barrick at the moment, and they will work out the how that is uh, shared by both uh, equity partners later on. Um, the law and order issues that uh, Barrick was facing and the people in Pogara were facing, um, how is the government 
dealing with it going forward because there's a lot of international uh, concerns around that as well. The law and order situation is pretty serious, uh, as we said, but we are. We've got the police commissioner and the police uh, attending to it. We've set up the new Kumu force that will be basically attending to a lot of the issues surrounding uh, project uh, protection and things including uh, Pogera. We'll be beefing up the police and soldiers up in uh, Pogera and also ensuring that the safety of the citizens there and uh, the mine workers are protected. Those uh, new relationships that the PM is forging overseas, uh, the embassy in Jerusalem, overseas in Hong Kong, those, those new relationships, how are they playing out? I mean, what's the rationale behind them? As you can see, PNG stands as a strategic uh, country right now, and the PM is our best ambassador. As the head of this country, he's the best ambassador to be selling this country. We have a lot to offer. And having the PM uh, selling and representing our country, bringing in economic opportunities. People say we need jobs. We need to get, guarantee those jobs. How best can we do that when you hear it straight from the PM's mouth? So those are why the PM is uh, going on these things. He's on uh, currently forging relationships with the Asian countries. He's currently in Hong Kong uh, forging those relationships, making certain that we bring back partnership, we bring back uh, economic uh, prosperity for a country. And what guarantee can you get except having the PM himself guaranteeing that and being the best salesman for our home country? Pacific Island states have been meeting in Samoa over the past week to work out priorities ahead of the United Nations Climate Change Conference, COP28, in Dubai. The countries are asking large greenhouse gas-emitting nations to be held accountable and pay for the impacts of climate change. Pepetua Latasi, who was representing Tuvalu, spoke with Caleb Fotheringham from the meeting venue in Alpia. In many ways that Tuvalu has been facing all the impacts as a result of climate change. It has been affecting our food security as well as water security. Our, our precious land, our valuable land from coastal erosion, inundation. So that the list goes on and that goes to say that we get the whole brunt of the impacts of climate change onto the environment that affecting the livelihoods of our people. As we come into COP28, what are Tuvalu's priorities? Yeah, for COP28, um, the agenda is a full-on agenda, but with a smaller delegation, um, we try to maximise and strategize for us to, to get the best out of it. Our priorities that we have outlined for, for this COP for COP28 includes mitigation and just transition, uh, loss and damage, finance and adaptation, as well as uh, looking into the, the importance of how gender plays a role in, in engaging everyone. At the moment, you're obviously with other Pacific Island states at the meeting and you're deciding what the priorities are going to be. Are all the Pacific Islands that are at this meeting aligned on what the priorities are going to be for COP28? 
Yes, uh, pretty much share most priorities. However, there are country-specific priorities for some of the other countries, but there are a number of issues that our countries are aligned on their priorities going to COP28. And how hopeful are you that Tuvalu's priorities are going to be met? We, we all want to get the best possible decision that we can get out of the, of the COP. Therefore, it's very important for us to work together, not only amongst ourselves as PCs, but also with our partners, so that we, we can both understand the priorities that we all have and to craft a decision that could address the best way we can. How have you found larger countries' response so far to climate change and helping small Pacific Island states? The, the support has always been there as parties respond to their obligation under the Convention and the Paris Agreement in terms of providing the um, finance, the technical assistance through the, the various channels that are being outlined under the, the Paris Agreement and the Convention. So, for instance, the financial mechanisms of the Convention, the Paris Agreement, like the GCF. So that, that that support has been provided, but we all know for sure that there are gaps in those support or the, the, the support has been um, far behind from reaching targets that have been made uh, in, in previous years. And we have also noticed that, that it is critical to look into emission reduction targets, especially as we are trying to finalise the report or the, the first global stock take for the Paris Agreement so that we know where we are and, and how we have progressed since the coming into force of the Paris Agreement. That's Pacific Waves for today. To listen back, head over to rnzi.com slash programs. We're also on Apple, Spotify and iHeartRadio podcasts. From myself and the RNZ Pacific team, Tofa Soifua.